Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, 25 years after an amazing demonstration of people power in Birmingham, which led to the cancellation of billions of dollars worth of debt in the developing world, is it time for a repeat performance to unchain the Global South? Okay, I'd like to welcome you to this special occasion. For those who don't know, my name's Ruth Tetlow and I've been involved with debt justice and before that Jubilee Debt campaign for many, many a long year. Especially warm welcome to Birmingham for those who've travelled a distance to be here. Ruth Tetlow, one of the participants in a remarkable human chain of 70,000 people which threaded all the way through Birmingham city centre in May 1998. The chain, with its echoes of slavery, symbolised how, even in the modern age, the developing world was shackled to its wealthier counterparts. Tony Blair was hosting a summit of the rich G8 nations in the city. President Clinton came to town. So too did tens of thousands of polite, peaceful protesters. Many, like my mum, came with their church. They were all calling for an end to third world debt. Today, they're planting a commemorative tree. And I really hope that this tree here and the, and the achievements that it commemorates becomes a permanent reminder to everybody who passes by here of all that you have achieved and becomes a source of inspiration for everyone who believes in uh, a better world for everyone. Thank you so much. Heidi Chow from Debt Justice, who we'll hear more from shortly. The protesters caught a wave, concern about the scale of debt in the Global South and what it meant for millions of people already struggling to get by had been increasing for some time. But this protest was the moment the campaign leapt into national and international consciousness. Politicians listened and eventually $130 billion of debt were wiped out. Among those who came to celebrate the planting of the commemorative tree was Rachel Stevens, who had worked in Africa for the Methodist Church. I've come to celebrate today because the idea to have a chain when the leaders of the nations came to meet was actually my idea. We were going to just maybe two dozen of us hold hands round the meeting and pray. Then suddenly people took up the idea... And so the explosion was coped with here in Birmingham. And they had, we think, around 70,000 making the chain, and it was 11 miles long. And you can see photographs of the chain to this day. It was a fantastic expression of people's concern about world debt. My mum was one of the people in that chain. Oh, was she? Came here with her local church group. Those people who took part in the chain are part of world history now. We may not have cancelled the whole of the debt, but some of it has gone. And Bill Clinton and Tony Blair did engage with this protest. Yes, a number of the leaders came back to see it because they heard on the radio what was happening and they couldn't believe it and they came back to see and went round the chain in a car. They were so impressed. The organisers, of which you were one, were seeking to get $350 billion of debt cancelled. In the end, $130 billion of debt were cancelled. How do you look upon that achievement now? I think it was a fantastic expression 
of the real international concern for justice. It was much more a question of our becoming aware of and seeking to remedy this terrible injustice. Why should people be born into countries with that amount of debt? They didn't accumulate it, and now we've got to do the rest. There's a quotation from President Kenneth Cowder in which he said, it will be the people who will actually cancel the debt and work to cancel the debt. And I agree with him, and that's what we've got to do. Rachel Stevens. Unfortunately, despite the success of the campaign, the scale of global debt is now greater than ever. So what causes that debt, and what can we do about it? I've been speaking to Heidi Chow, the director of campaign group Debt Justice. I asked her first... How important was that mammoth human chain a quarter of a century ago? It was a significant moment because essentially it pushed the issue of debt up the global political agenda. So the campaign for debt cancellation, the Jubilee campaign, as it was called back then, it'd been in motion for a few years. But this moment really galvanised the issue and really shot it to the forefront of the attention of the world's media and also global politicians. And it got so much attention that even the Prime Minister of the day ended up calling the organisers into a meeting to hear their demands. And eventually that human chain, that protest, eventually led to large-scale debt cancellation for countries that were in a debt crisis. So how much debt was cancelled as a result? Our estimates show that at least $130 billion worth of debts were cancelled in this period. And it made a really significant difference to countries that were in a debt crisis. So when we say debt crisis, that means that basically the debt repayments of countries are so high that it's undermining the ability of governments to be able to deliver essential public services like healthcare and education. And so when you cancel the debts of some of these countries that were in a debt crisis, it meant that instead of paying wealthy lenders in rich countries, these resources could be ploughed back domestically into the economy and into meeting the basic needs of people. People will understand the concept of debt. What does debt justice, which is the name of your campaign, mean? I think everyone has a basic understanding of debt, that if you borrow money, essentially you pay it back. But when it comes to debts of a country, we also need to look at the systemic factors of what's forced a country into debt in the first place, as well as the context in which debts have been taken out. So, for example, we've seen situations where loans have been given out to countries with really extortionate interest rates, which are clearly unsustainable for a country to maintain. We've seen situations where a government has taken out a loan without any transparency or accountability to its own people or without democratic consent. And also in the current context of climate breakdown, we've seen the climate finance, which is supposed to be the finance to enable global South countries to transition to greener economies and also to help them to mitigate the impacts and adapt to the impacts of the climate crisis. This finance has been given largely in the form of loans rather than grants. And fundamentally, we think that debt repayments to rich lenders should never come before meeting the basic needs of people, such as delivering clean water, sanitation, food, investment in housing, basic services like healthcare and education. And so whenever debt repayments are diverting resources away from these fundamentals, that's when we would say the debts are unjust. And the concept of debt justice includes reference to colonialism. It includes reference to climate change as well, because many of the countries who are already suffering the worst effects of the climate crisis are countries which did not 
contribute to creating the greenhouse gases from which they are now suffering. That's right. So in terms of debt and colonialism, we've seen debt being used as a weapon or a vehicle of colonialism in order to exploit, control and plunder the economies of the global south. And in fact, even when countries became independent in the mid 20th century, the rules of the global economy were essentially written by rich countries, corporations in their interests. And so even though countries became independent, they were dependent on a global economy where the rules on things like trade, tax and finance were continued to be rigged against them. And so because of that, countries have struggled to develop diversified and resilient economies and so often have no option but to turn to debt in order to meet their public finances, which again increases the power of corporations and rich countries in the global north because then they hold the strings to their finances. And so what happens is that all it takes is for an external shock to plunge these countries into debt. And that's what we've seen in the recent years. This cascading polycrisis from the pandemic through to the wars in Ukraine and now in Gaza, with food and fuel price spikes, high inflation, rising interest rates, all of these external shocks have plunged countries that are predisposed to high levels of debt anyway because of the global economy that's been rigged against their interests has plunged them into a debt crisis. And then, like you said, there's also a very strong connection to the climate crisis, which is because of the climate finance angle, but also because when countries are hit by an extreme event like a hurricane or a flood, they then have to pay for the rebuilding and reconstruction costs, often through even more debt. So if a country's in a debt crisis, they're having to take on even more to pay for a climate crisis that they had no hand in creating. So we see basically the climate crisis and the debt crisis fueling each other in a vicious cycle. Can we give any concrete examples of debt injustice? What does that look like on the ground? We've been working on a campaign to highlight the impacts of the debt crisis in Zambia. We have somebody we've been working there with, a young lady called Precious, who is a grassroots campaigner and organiser and educator on the debt and climate crisis. Zambia was hit by the worst flooding it's seen in 50 years last year. And these floods affected over 150,000 people, destroying roads and bridges, preventing people from accessing schools, accessing health facilities and local markets and so on. And Precious's father's house was washed away as part of that flood. And she told us that her father's really struggled to rebuild their home because there's no government protection or government support or funding available simply because Zambia is in a debt crisis and they don't have the funds to provide the level of public support needed to respond to the climate crisis. She's also told us about how the debt situation in her community has meant that they've seen a big jump in their cost of living. And so in her community, she's seen people who can't even afford to eat three times a day. Their hospitals are lacking the right medicines and people are struggling to access education, but all because of the debt crisis that's taking place in Zambia right now. And also in that, well, you've seen the interplay between the climate crisis and the debt crisis there as well. In these kinds of cases, then, who is the money owed to? Globally, we say that just under half of all Global South debt repayments are owed to private creditors. So these would be banks and hedge funds. And then about a quarter is owed to other governments and roughly a quarter to multilateral institutions like the World Bank and the IMF. But if the money is needed for infrastructure improvements, for example, in a country and the country borrows money from a bank or from a hedge fund, for example, and if they default on that debt, what incentive is there for the lender to lend any money in future? 
often when we talk about things that go wrong and countries borrow money, there's often a lot of emphasis on the responsibility of the borrower country for not paying back, but it's certainly not enough on lender responsibility. So actually a lender also needs to take responsibility for assessing the viability of that loan, thinking about how sustainable it is for that country, offering it at decent interest rates that are sustainable. So there's all sorts of factors on the lender's side. We've also seen from evidence that the $130 billion worth of debt cancellation that was won in the late 1990s, early 2000s, following that big debt cancellation, we've not seen any evidence whatsoever that lending has dried up to those countries. And in fact, for the 36 countries that got debt cancellation as part of that debt relief initiative back then, we've seen lending to those 36 countries in particular almost shoot up by about tenfold in the space of 10 years after that debt cancellation happened. And I think ultimately, creditors, people who lend money, banks, hedge funds and other institutions, ultimately want to make money from their lending. That's their business model. So if anything, when countries have had a debt cancellation, it actually improves their credit rating because it means that their finances are more on a steady footing. And so if anything, it should improve their credit status and in which case incentivizes lenders with no fear of lending drying up. When the debt was cancelled, who paid for that? Unfortunately, it was largely paid by the public purse. It would have been, so for example, the member government's contribution to the IMF World Bank that would have taken the hit. And actually what happened in that debt crisis of the 1980s, 1990s, and what's happening right now is actually very similar in that that debt crisis back then was because in the 1970s, a lot of the private banks and hedge funds had lent a lot of money to the global south. And then when things started to go wrong, instead of defaulting on these banks and hedge funds, which is what should have happened, instead the IMF and World Bank bailed them out. So what they did was they uh, lent money to the Global South, which essentially enabled private banks and hedge funds to get paid out. So the loan went straight to the country and the country used it to pay back the banks. So then the risk was transferred, in other words, from the private sector to the public sector. There has been some progress, hasn't there? So-called vulture funds, which were loans to developing countries which looked as though they might not be repaid, which were then sold on to other financial institutions. Those have been significantly hampered, in the UK at least, haven't they, by legislation? Yeah, so the legislation you're referring to, the Debt Relief Developing Countries Act of 2010, this legislation was connected to that £130 worth of debt cancellation we talked about today. That legislation was basically preventing vulture funds from getting paid out more than they would have got through the debt relief scheme. So it's retrospective and it was looking back to that scheme. And we can't use that same legislation for today's debt crisis. It was only specifically for that particular debt relief programme. And actually, I'm glad you raised it because my organisation, Debt Justice, is currently running a campaign to try and get a new law introduced, which would help address the debt crisis that we're seeing today. And the UK is a significant jurisdiction for this law because 90% of the debts owed by the lowest income countries in the world are governed under UK law. And that actually is a bit of a legacy of colonialism. Over the years, people wanted to lend money with a stable jurisdiction. But uh, nevertheless, UK has this disproportionate role in terms of its law governing, like I said, 90% of the debt contracts of the debts owed by the lowest income countries. So if we can pass a law in this country, it would cover all of those debt contracts. And that law would prevent behaviour of vulture funds to exploit countries in a debt crisis. But it would also compel private lenders like banks and hedge funds to engage in debt cancellation. 
because right now there is a debt cancellation scheme that was set up in the wake of the pandemic. It was called the G20's Common Framework, but it's largely been ineffective because there's no way to force private creditors to come to the table. And so they've been free riding off efforts by international institutions and other governments to offer any debt cancellation. And so we're pushing for this legislation to actually provide some level of enforcement to banks and hedge funds that when countries get into trouble, that actually they also need to take some responsibility for their lending. You've said that in the initial round of debt relief, then the taxpayer bailed out the banks. I mean, who would have thought such a thing could happen? <laughs> and uh, at the same time, I mean, it's, it's kind of a weird, odd circle that you've identified here, whereby if debt relief happens, then the credit rating of the poorer country improves. That makes them then more attractive, again, to the lenders and more able to borrow money. So what is the way out of that cycle? I mean, short of simply donating many hundreds of billions of dollars to poorer countries, which you may argue is the way that we should go about it, how do we avoid saddling very poor countries with huge debt at the same time as helping them to develop economically? Yeah, it's a really big question. I'm going to give a really big answer. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, no, all. Come on, I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think there needs to be a massive redistribution. Essentially, the global north became rich from the extraction of the global south. They became rich off the back of colonialism. They became rich off the back of two centuries of burning fossil fuels. So there is a debt that is owed and it's owed from the global north to the global south. And so that's the case for reparations. There's also a case in terms of in the climate context for reparations to be expressed through climate finance being given as grants and not loans. There's also a loss and damage fund being set up as part of the UN international process. But that loss and damage fund, which is to pay for the impacts of the climate crisis in the global south, the fight is still out in terms of trying to fight for that fund to be dispersing funds as grants and not loans once again. So that's a direct transfer, direct redistribution of wealth that we need to see. We also need to change the global economy. <laughs> so I've mentioned how the global economy is essentially organised in the interests of rich countries and corporations. So we actually need to see changes in how the global tax system works. We need to see changes in how the global trade system works, the global finance system works, because all of those will help change the underlying economic starting point for those countries and enable them to engage economically in the global economy on a much fairer standing. And then in terms of debt, because there will always be debt in the system, I think, unless we get to that utopia. We also need to see stronger mechanisms to enable debt relief to happen in a way that is fair and swift. Right now, like I said, we have this G20 common framework, which is today's debt relief scheme, but it's only eligible for the lowest income countries. It's not eligible for middle income countries like Pakistan and Sri Lanka and a lot of the Caribbean countries that are also on the front lines of the debt and climate crisis. So we need a comprehensive scheme that covers all countries that are in need of debt relief. And then we also need to see the rules of that system played out fairly so that the needs of both the debtors are also considered, not just the needs of the creditors, which is a system that we have now to tilt that balance so it's fairer. And so we also, like I said, in a longer term fight for a kind of a UN debt workout mechanism. So this would be something that we set up at UN level that would apply for all countries and that would be fair, swift and responsive to the needs of countries that need it. So, yes, yeah, so there's a whole series of things there that kind of respond to that bigger question of 
what do we do sort of longer term in terms of addressing this situation? Heidi Chow from Debt Justice. Now, Heidi mentioned in that interview one of their campaigners in Zambia, Precious Kalambwana. I caught up with Precious, who lives in Lusaka, and asked her how tough life is right now for ordinary people in Zambia. Right now, in 2024, the cost of living is very high. We are eating like once per day because of debt crisis. We are unable to fight climate change because Zambia is still in debt. There was a flood, was it last year, which took your father's house away? Yes, my father's house was flooded because of a lot of rains. We are unable to build a house for him because we don't have money. And uh, we are still struggling to fight the climate crisis because of it. As I understand it, Zambia has something like $8 billion worth of debt. Some of this is to investment companies. In some cases, this is debt to the Chinese government, the French government, and the British government as well. And Zambia and debt justice campaigners have been asking all of those lenders if they would reduce the debt or remove the debt. Yes, we started uh, two years ago demanding, not just asking, but demanding for global North countries to cancel our debt. But still now, we are still pushing, we are still fighting so that Zambia's date is cancelled. Because 30% of our national budgets, we repay our dates, so it's impossible. And we, we don't have even medicines in our health centres because of our date. Right now, we are facing a challenge of cholera cases. People are dying every day because of cholera. We are unable to do anything because we don't have money. So it's very difficult for our country to fight any disease or any climate crisis because we still don't have money. We are still asking global North countries to cancel our debt. And till now, we have not lost hope. We're still fighting for our country not to be in this uh, debt crisis. I know that in your view, and this is why you use the word demand, You believe that Western governments, including the UK, owe a debt to Zambia. This is not about begging for something. You think that climate change is the responsibility of the West and the West should pay for it? Yes, because Africa or Zambia is just responsible for 0.3% of the climate emissions. So the global North countries are responsible to repay for global South countries, including Zambia, for reparations and to reduce those high rates. Imagine a country like Zambia repaying at a high rate and those richer countries from like UK. So it's very unfair. That's why we are using the word demanding. We are demanding because we are not the contributors of climate change. But you believe you are the victims of climate change that was created by the West. Yes, we are the victims, but we have a lot of resources and we are still in debt crisis. People are dying. People are not eating accordingly. People are not having safe clean water. It's very even expensive to buy purified water from shops. People are dying of cholera disease. We don't have medicines in clinics, in hospitals because of the debt crisis. 
it's very unfair. That's why we are demanding for global north countries, including UK and all those lenders we are owing money to cancel our days. People will die. Please, let's uh, hold our hands and fight together. It's not just about global south countries. It also includes global north countries. We are facing the same situation of climate crisis. We are facing this crisis together. We need to put our hands together and fight together. Precious Kalambwana. Now, I have been speaking to one of the large investment firms often criticised for lending money to developing countries who then struggle to pay it back. The company didn't want to be interviewed, but said that their money came from ordinary people looking to save for a pension and that they had a fiduciary duty to get the best possible return so they couldn't just cancel debt. But they acknowledge that it is in everyone's interest to set debt repayments at sustainable levels. Clearly, eliminating or even reducing international debt isn't easy. But as my mum and 70,000 other people proved in Birmingham that day in 1998, it can be done. My name's Adrian Goldberg. You've been listening to a We Bring Audio production made in Birmingham by me and Harvey White for the Byline Times. And if you do want to support this podcast, please consider taking out a subscription to the Byline Times. It's our fantastic monthly newspaper and it combines the best of our online offerings with exclusive content that you can't read anywhere else. Head over to bylinetimes.com to take out a subscription. That's over at bylinetimes.com. Thanks for listening. I'll see you again soon. Cheers now. Bye-bye.